Hello and welcome to the Message Makeover Podcast, brought to you by the Latimer Group, the experts in persuasive communication, and the Cooney Company, the experts in business connection. I'm Dean Brenner, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Dan Cooney. Hello, Dan. Hello, Dean. What is happening? How are you? I'm doing fine. We had an October surprise up here near Cape Cod. We had a uh, bomb cyclone come through. Yeah, you know, it's like when they when they get us all geared up that the hurricanes are coming, this is a completely unscientific statement. It feels like they underperform. And then the less we hear, like, the more the storm outperforms. Yeah, I mean, we know when it's being formed by the butterflies off of Africa, right? When CNN's got seven, eight, nine days of coverage and then nothing happens. But this one just kind of flew into town and uh, it certainly had an impact. Yeah, well, I'm sorry about that. And uh, you told me a little bit about the damage and, and I'm just glad everybody's Oh, yeah, we're okay. fine. We're comfortable. We have the generator going and through the modern yeah. modern miracle of the generator, we are here today. Yeah. So, so Dan, we have a lot to talk about with our with our guest today. Our audience is in for a real treat. Uh, we'll introduce our guest in a moment, but let me just say that this is a conversation that has been a highlight on my calendar for a while now. I'm, I'm guessing you feel the same. Um, I, I love our guest and his family, and I think the book was a real page turner. It uh, It's an exciting topic for us to talk about today. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah, so let's let's kill the suspense and let's introduce our guest for our audience. Today we are pleased and excited to be joined by John Vandemore, the former sailing coach at Stanford University and a person who has spent some time in the news over the last couple of years, perhaps in ways that he wished he had not. John was implicated in the now well-known college admissions scandal codenamed Varsity Blues that led to many investigations, felony charges, indictments, and changed lives, including his own. John was among 50 people charged in connection to the case and was the first to be sentenced. He pled guilty to conspiracy to commit federal racketeering for arranging bribes to the Stanford sailing program in exchange for preferential admission for students, some of whom might not have even been sailors. He was ultimately given two years supervised release, including six months of home detention, a $10,000 fine, but no prison time. John has now completed and paid his penalties and is getting on with his life. Part of that process has been the publication of his recent book, Rigged Justice, which we both have read and which tells for the first time John's side of the story. Those are the basic facts. But as we are sure you will learn over the course of this interview, there is a lot more to this story. Our listeners should also know right up front that both of us know John personally. Dan and I are both sailors and sailing is a small community. We have dealt with John in a number of different capacities over the years, most specifically when John's wife, Molly, qualified for the 2012 U.S. Olympic sailing team and represented the United States at the London Games. Throughout that process, we both became close with Molly and John. All right, Dan, so let's do a quick little summary for our listeners here. As we always do on the Message Makeover, we like to do a quick executive summary up front. We're going to play a few clips here. And then we'll play the interview with John in its entirety. But before we get to the clips, just really quickly, a couple of sentences. What's this case about for you? What did you learn during this process of reading the book and getting to know John? Uh, an ordinary individual gets caught up between two massively powerful institutions. One, the criminal justice system, the, the United States of America, and B, yep. uh, Stanford Uni University. Um, you know, and then... What chance do you have? I mean, it's like an individual in the middle. We talked about it, you know, a hurricane. It's like a middle person in the middle of a hurricane. And it's, it's just 
you, you can't go against nature, the laws of nature. Right, right. I think that's going to come out loud and clear. John was stuck in the, you know, the figurative rock in a hard place between two massive institutions. And the only thing that I'll add to that is, you know, to our listeners who may, maybe don't know this story as well and just remember what they read in the paper, try and put that aside. Uh, yes, Dan and I are biased here. We are close with John and we are close with his wife, Molly. But there's a reason we invited John onto this podcast. There's a reason that Dan and I have taken an interest in this story. We think this is a story worth telling. All right, so let's let's get to some clips here, Dan. And and we've got three. Why don't you introduce the first one and then we'll play the clip. Okay, well, one of the central themes of the book is that John is different than the other players in the Varsity Blues scandal. He didn't pocket a dime and all the money that came in from Rick Singer went right to Stanford. Uh, in this clip, I think the feds give a hint that they may have agreed with that. Uh, let's roll the clip. They are. And if you look at even more, I'm the only one that was offered a deal um, besides, you know, Rudy Meredith and Rick Singer, who is the two that basically broke open the whole case. Right. So I'm the only one that's offered a deal and I'm giving them nothing. They have nothing else because I didn't do anything. I don't have anything to give them. They didn't even ask me for anything, really. And so why are they even offering me a deal? Well, because I'm so different than everybody else in this. It, yeah. it, it's just brutal. All right. So, Dan, what do you hear when you listen to that clip? Well, that they they <laughs> they offered him a deal um, and he didn't give him anything. So, you know, right. so, I mean, it's, it's fairly self-evident that they're trying to carve him out of the case. And exactly. they're trying to carve him out of a case because it makes their case stronger because he exactly. one of these things isn't like the other. And uh, right. it seems to me that they that they knew that was the case. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think the track record from the Justice Department is pretty clear. They don't offer you a deal for no reason. They don't offer you, they don't let people off without reason. And they basically carved him out separately. They didn't give him a deal because he gave them fantastic information on other people. He gave them nothing. And they, and they, and they offered him a dramatically different sentence than everybody else. That's a really important part of this. And that's not something that got widely reported in the media coverage of this case. Okay. I, I totally agree with you there. And, 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 you know, this has been really hard on John. It's been really, you know, he talks later on in the interview about the post-traumatic stress disorder that he was diagnosed yeah. with from this. Uh, you know, no, no question that this was a unique situation. He was not in the same camp as the Georgetown tennis coach and the Yale soccer coach and Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin and the rest of the like. So, all right. So that's great. So that, that, that sets up one theme that we want to call out here is that John really is in a different category than everybody else. Let's play the second clip now. And, and this has to do a little bit more with the theme of innocence here, okay? But let, well, why don't you introduce our second clip here, Dan? So this is a little bit about, like, uh, you know, you talk about it later in the interview. Like, why would an innocent person plead guilty to a crime? <laughs> like, that doesn't make any sense yeah. to us, right? Um, amen. But John's circumstances were such that they had a stranglehold on, stranglehold on him. And it's very revealing. So let's listen to what winning, air quotes, winning looked like uh, had tr John tried to defend himself in this case. And he's going to have to read through um, every piece of paper that comes across. We already know because the government's already told us that you're the least culpable in this case. But I still have to read everything. 
um, because if there's something there that could help you, I've got to be able to read it. So you're out of a job for a year. No one's going to hire you because you could be going to real jail. Um, your, your career is over because the career is not based on whether I win legally or not. It's based on reputation. Um, and that's, that's really done. And they kept pointing out the Duke lacrosse coach as a good example um, of what he went through. And he's just now, I think three or four years later, getting back to coaching. Um, and then we have the cost and the cost we thought was going to be, this is before COVID, um, a little over $2 million, uh, to defend me. And if I win, that money doesn't come back. I mean, that, that money's gone. Um, and I don't have $2 million. I was a sailing coach that took no money. Yeah. And you know, so what stands out for me in that clip it, it, well, let me, let me say this first, and, and this comes out later in the interview, too. I made a comment towards the end of the interview that getting to know this story through John's eyes, reading the book, hearing his version of it, has dramatically changed my vision of the criminal justice system. I, I, I will openly admit that there used to be a part of me that believed that if a person pled guilty, they probably were guilty of something. And I, I, there have been cases that I have followed along and I've said to myself, why would you plead guilty if you weren't guilty? And, and, and what he's getting at there is winning looked like several years of work being lumped in with a guilty plea with all these other, you know, parties, costing him a couple of million bucks, which he didn't have, which he was never going to get back. His best case scenario was fight it alongside with all these other people, spend a couple of million bucks. But the really interesting part of it was if he pled not guilty, all the, this is what this is one the, the way the racketeering laws are written. If he pled not guilty, all of the cases essentially get tried together. Everybody gets lumped together, and now you're relying on a jury to parse out differences between you know um, um, uh, implicated person A versus implicated person B versus C, and you're relying on a jury to pick out those details and for them to come to their own conclusion, oh, that guy's different. The only way, forget the money for a second, the only way for him to separate his story and make it obvious under his own control and his lawyer's control that his story was different was to plead guilty. If he pled not guilty, he was lumped in. If he pled guilty, he could control his own narrative. It's it, To me, it's just it's terrifying. I've literally kind of woke up a couple of times since reading the book thinking, what would I do putting myself in his shoes? I can either try to defend myself for something I didn't do, but the government is hell-bent on proving that I did. Um, and that's going to cost me $2 million or plead to this lesser charge and have some kind right. of, you know, some path, some terrible, horrible path forward. It's like they're giving you an impossible choice and the government has the power to do that and, and to take someone's freedom, to take someone's reputation, yeah, to take someone's future. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, you know, the first clip, what we're getting at is that, you know, they offered him a deal. Okay because he really was different. But the second clip, we're getting at that really brutal choice of realizing that your best path was to plead yeah. guilty, even though you believe in your heart that you did absolutely yeah. nothing wrong. I, I just find I just find it uh, that I found it maddening to read the book. I knew some of this uh, beforehand, but uh, the book really laid it out. 
By the way, I think the book is incredibly well written. It's yes. uh, it's easy to consume. Uh, it's it's really yes. an interesting read. Yeah. Totally. And and by, there's another element to that which will come out in the interview that he had to make that choice about guilty versus not guilty plea in a very oh my short God, period changing of changing his life within you know at first right. he was going to be three days and they ended up giving him six. But right. uh, he was in between but he, but he lawyers. lawyers. Oh, God, can you right. imagine? So, practically speaking, it was probably the right. three days. All right, so let's do our third clip, and then we'll get to the interview for our for our listeners. Tee this one up. Dan. Okay, so the cultural fundraising undercurrent at Stanford was strong. It seems like after reading the book, when he first got to Stanford, coaches coached, and they weren't responsible to fund their own capital expenditures. That changed midway through his tenure. So let's listen to the signals continually received that he received when he brought in a donation and something that had become really a part of his job description. So every donation that Rick brought in, um, I brought right down to them. They wanted me to see if he would donate more, um, to pledge more. Uh, they were very interested in this. And when I tried to explain who Rick Singer was, especially in the very beginning, uh, I just got stopped short and said, oh, no, no, we know Rick. Hmm. Um, so I, I'm thinking from that conversation that I'm doing the right thing. Okay. So when we listen to that clip, Dan, there's a few things there. And 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 some of it in the clip, some of it will come out later in the interview. You know, Stanford is a wealthy school, second biggest endowment in the country, $29 billion. And... It is always eye-opening to see how much pressure there is put on coaches to raise money for their own programs. And, and there was an institutional machine exerting pressure to bring in money. And by the way, that was not the job description that he originally accepted when he, when he started teaching there. That changed during his tenure. And, and you know, if you think about it, if you think about the pressure schools have to raise money, some of them raise it because they need it. Some of them raise it because they're focused on keeping their endowment at the top of the list for college rankings and all of those, that crazy world, which we talk about a little bit later in the interview as well. But the bottom line is, whether you're a wealthy school or not, the machine, the development machine is in full force all the time. And a lot of people get sucked into it. Yep. I love that you've called it a machine because it was clearly, I mean, these schools are powerful machines. And, you know, it's easy to be throwing around something like toxic culture or whatever. I don't know if it was a toxic culture, but it doesn't seem like a very healthy culture there. What was John rewarded for? He was rewarded for when he brought in the donations. What did John get attention for? Not when somebody uh, was a Marshall Scholar on his team or did something great academic All-American or won a national championship. Yeah. He got attention when he brought in money. Uh, when he brought in donations, what was the only question asked? Can we get more? <laughs> Can we get these person to pledge for more? Did he have any fundraising training? No fundraising, legal, ethical training. Every coach is, you know, trying to coach, uh, trying to bring in capital expenditures on their own. Uh, the, right. the, the we know Rick, you know, uh, comment right. that you'll, you'll hear about in the full interview. All of these things. For sure. And if a school like Stanford has this mindset of more, 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 I need more, more, more. Like, what is that? I mean, and, and by the way, Stanford's not the only school, right? Rick, Rick oh, Singer- gotcha couldn't have existed without schools that were had this more, more, more like Georgetown, Wake Forest, Yale, University of California, Yale. on and on. So Yale. these are very wealthy places, and yet they have Absolutely. a mindset of needing more. It's just an interesting, like I just, I can't call it toxic, but it doesn't sound healthy yeah. to me. 
No, no. And, 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 you know, the ultimate point, and then, and then let's wrap it up and get to the rest of the interview. The ultimate point for me, which was loud and clear in this, in this discussion with John, is that when the machine is so dependent upon raising money, when schools need to raise their endowment for whatever reason, when their development officers are given quotas and expectations to raise money, when you have to go to people, when your tuition doesn't cover the cost of operating your school, when you run at an annual deficit and you need fundraising to close, to balance the books, everything is pointing towards uncomfortable situations, compromised situations in pursuit of fundraising. And whenever you need to basically beg people for money to balance your books and keep your endowment high, there will always be situations like this happening. Side doors will always find a way to get opened. Nature abhors a vacuum and they, <laughs> the side doors will exist. And, you know, we, we recorded right. this on John's birthday and, yep. you know, this is kind of a rebirth for him, right? And this next right. chapter of his life and as he seems to be off to a great yeah. start. And I know we both wish him and his family well. Yeah. So let's pause our summary there for listeners who've heard enough. Couldn't recommend the book more highly to you, Rigged Justice. We will include a link to the book when we promote the podcast. For those that want to hear the real the real full interview here, and we highly recommend it to you, listen on. We will now play it in full. Uh, good job, Dan. Really Thanks, enjoyed Dean. this conversation with you. So, John, we apologize for that long introduction, but this is a conversation that certainly needs a lot of context. And Dan and I are really excited to welcome you to the Message Makeover podcast. I'm excited to be here and especially excited to be here with you too. Thank you. Yeah. And, and you've been a visible guy over the last few months with appearances and coverage of your story in the New York Times, the Post, New York Post, Good Morning America, ABC News, dozens of podcasts, none of them as big as this one, obviously as well as being a centerpiece in the Netflix documentary on the case. So let's start here, John. <laughs> How's life? And uh, if our calendars are correct, today is your birthday. Today is, right? is my birthday. Yeah. And I, yeah. Happy birthday. Thank yeah. you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I celebrated by having a, an NPR 1A interview at uh, 7 this morning. Um, so, so that was nice. <laughs> nice. You, you, you and your family have been through a lot, and, and we're excited to – to hear more of the story uh, today, John. So we're gonna we're going to dig into a number of different things here. Now, some of our listeners are probably really familiar with the case. Some of them probably not as familiar as 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 we are. So what we thought we could do is just start off with a quick, basic timeline of events. Get some of that out of the way. Make sure that we've got it right. So feel free to correct us as we go, and then we can dig into a couple of the deeper issues that Dan and I really want to explore. All right. Okay. So, so here, here's the way we understand it. You first met a guy named Rick Singer in October 2016. And up front, he made it pretty clear to you that he had relationships with families that would be willing to donate significant sums to your program if their child was accepted to Stanford. And I think he even mentioned a name to you uh, in, in one of those first interactions. Okay. Does that sound right? That sounds right. Yep. Yeah. And then now let's fast forward August 2017. Rick contacts you again. That same first student he mentioned ended up getting in on her own, but he still wanted to make a donation of 500000 to Stanford Sailing. And, and this donation was from his foundation, right? That's correct. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Then you hear from him again a few weeks later, brings up another name to you, but then you later learn that student ends up applying early to Penn. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, January 2018, he calls you again. Second st student has now been deferred and, he, and wants to pursue regular admission to Stanford. And he sends you 110,000 more. Our understanding from your book is that this donation was from his, a personal donation of, of his, right? It was, yes. Yeah. And, but then that student ends up going to Brown. So at this point, Stanford Sailing has received 610,000 in donations via Rick Singer, but no actual applications that you were endorsing or supporting, right? Correct. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. So now June, June 2018, third possible student. This one may be a gymnast and you'd had a gymnast switch over to sailing before. So maybe this wasn't that far-fetched, but a third name is now on your radar screen. And then I- yes. I guess the 2018 call in October, October 2018, that's the one that the FBI started to really started to zero in on. And, and on that call, there's more discussion about the third applicant who I guess ended up going to Vanderbilt. There's discussion of another donation, uh, but maybe uh, did another donation take place at that point? He did. He made uh, another donation uh, in kind of the famous phrase that he used, the deposit on our relationship. Um, yeah, and probably a phrase that you regret at this point, right? Deeply, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so now there's been multiple conversations over many months about names, donations. He's actually donated a significant amount of money. February 2019, the FBI and the IRS knocks on your door. March 12th, you plead guilty. Stanford fires you. June 12th, you're sentenced. But bottom line for our listeners, you never pocketed a dime. All these donations went to Stanford's development office and no Rick Singer student ever even ended up getting any support at all from you for their application process. Correct. Right? Yeah. Yep. So, so before we get into some of the, some of the depth, just we'd love to hear your perspective on that timeline and you ended up pleading guilty and we're going to dig into that. That's a fascinating process, but like w w where are the mistakes for you, John? What, you know, Tell us your perspective on what you pled guilty to. Uh, you, you've obviously thought about this a lot more than Dan and I have. Yeah, you know, it's. It, it, I think it's an ever evolving um, thought process through this. I don't know if I'll ever be through it, but you know, for for my interaction and with Rick and. You know, I get asked this all the time. Weren't there red flags? Weren't there things that that you could see and tell than everything else? And it seems really easy to see that or see it and say that now. Um, yeah. But when you're in the environment, when you're being backed up with your superiors, um, it, it it's, was really foggy to me then. Um, so I, I think the biggest thing for me and one of the biggest takeaways is that the presence of perspective is so important. You know, you go into a major university, which is a major corporation, and yep. you have these bosses that you need to trust and respect and have loyalty to, and you expect that back from them. And, and in most cases they do, but you also have to have this perspective that you need to protect yourself and you need to think about what people are offering you and how that is coming into play into your world. And, and does that fit who you are um, as a code? And I think I put myself more into the university shoes rather than in my own shoes and said, no, this doesn't sound right to me. Um, will I, would I have still picked up on it and what Rick was doing? I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. Um, Rick is an unbelievably engaging guy. 
and he can talk you to death. Um, my lawyer went into his on March 12th, 2019. He pled guilty right before me. We happened to get the same judge, which was brutal as well. And my lawyer went in and listened to his um, plea hearing and came out in, after an hour, which was supposed to be 20 minutes. And he said, John, you, he's still going. You got to You're killing me. I mean, this is this guy's unbelievable. I, I totally get it. Um, I was like on his side when I was in there and he's pleading guilty to federal crimes. Um, it's crazy. Um, but this guy is good at it for sure. But for me, the biggest takeaway is perspective um, yeah. and really trying to look at, you know, the adage of it's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. Yep. Uh, hey, John, uh, reading the book, knowing you and knowing a, just a little bit about the case, it was a maddening experience. Okay. Because it's a lesson in how overwhelmingly powerful the government is and these organizations and institutions are and how helpless we can be in the face of that power. And, you know, by the way, this is the Message Makeover podcast. I think this book, Rig Justice, is the biggest, the best message makeover I've ever seen. So kudos to you, because I think we do do the message makeover here in this book. And I wondered if we could just dive into a few questions about the criminal justice system and how you were caught by, if you, if, if you would, reading a, a short passage, and I'll, I'll set it up for the listeners. Uh, this is when John had just learned from the attorney, his attorney, what he had been charged with and what penalties that those charges carried. Uh, they were significant. And he was able, he had a moment, an emotional moment, and then he was able to drive over and go see his wife, Molly, who, as Dean mentioned, is fabulous and who we know well. Uh, from the 2012 Olympic team. You drive over there, John, and then this is the conversation when she sees you. Uh, this is this is the, uh, the passage in the book. What? She said with alarm when she saw me. That lawyer called. He told me what I'm charged with. It's unbelievable. It's like three counts of fraud or something, and I struggled to get the next words out. They would get, they would each get me 20 years in jail. Her face fell. But he said, I can make a deal. If I pled, pled guilty, and then I would, he said, and I'd go to jail for two years. What? Two years? You'd go to jail? Are you serious? Yes. You have to say you're guilty? Yes. But you didn't do anything wrong. I know, I know that. But the lawyer said they're giving me a way out. This is insane, she said. I know. And you have to decide by Friday? Can you get more time? I don't know. I don't think so. Well, did you ask him that? No. But you have this other Boston lawyer now. Can't he help you? I don't know, I said. We looked at each other without speaking. It's like, wow. I mean, you have been through so much. And so one of the questions I have is, did you come away thinking... You know, with you only had three days to decide whether you're going to take this plea deal, right? A, a deal that would change your life forever. And you had three days to decide that. And there's a couple other things that we want to talk about, too. But did you come away thinking that that was like a bug in the system? Or was the system set up in this way to have that overwhelming power be so disproportionate to what an individual could conjure up? 
you know, at first I thought it was, you know, a bug, as you say, or some mistake. Um, it can't possibly be true that this is the way it works, that I'm going to decide basically the rest of my life in the short amount of time. When I when I got my new lawyer, as I mentioned there, um, Robert Fisher, and so I had an assigned lawyer, a public defender, and I was in this transition phase at the same time of hiring a lawyer. And when I hired that lawyer, it made it abundantly clear that this is the way the system was set up. And specifically this case um, and using racketeering was a way that they could have as much power as possible. Um, the power of prosecution is enormous. So wait, what was the total time gap between you finding out what your choices were and you having to make the choice? How much time did you have? So they gave me a total of, I believe in the end, it was six days total um, to make that decision. Uh, but at the same time, I was also in the middle of switching lawyers. My lawyer had to do due diligence to yeah. see if he could um, uh, represent me. And my lawyer, my new lawyer, the lawyer I ended up hiring, worked in the federal prosecution office and would have done this case if he'd stayed there and not gone to private practice. And right. he said, hey, I'll talk to these guys. I know them all. We'll see if we can delay this. It's easily we can do this all the time. He at the time was actually representing Robert Mueller's um, business partner in the Mueller report in New York at the same time. So he's doing both. Um, and he came back to me and said, I I've never been experienced this, but they'll give me no time and we have to decide. So really when I had my legal counsel and made a decision and the defense knew, I mean, the prosecution knew this completely. Um, I had three days. So you had three days and, and there's obviously a major range of outcomes in terms of the penalty Tell us a little bit about the range and cost between those two choices. So the way uh, my lawyers did a great job of basically laying out to me and, and took it this way. So let's look at what winning looks like. So if you win, you this case will be tried because it's a racketeering case and becomes much more complicated. And all the coaches, and we thought at the time the parents were there, they wouldn't give us a number of how many coaches and parents. So this was an unknown number at the time. And the, he said, that's going to be, you know, a year from now, we're going to start the case. It's probably going to take a month in trial, um, at least to do that. And he's going to have to read through um, every piece of paper that comes across. We already know because the government's already told us that you're the least culpable in this case. But I still have to read everything um, because if there's something there that could help you, I've got to be able to read it. So you're out of a job for a year. No one's going to hire you because you could be going to real jail. Um, your your career is over because the career is not based on whether I win legally or not. It's based on reputation. Um, and that's that's really done. And they kept pointing out the Duke lacrosse coach as a good example um, of what he went through. And he's just now, I think, three or four years later, getting back to coaching. Um, and then we have the cost and the cost we thought was going to be, this is before COVID um, a little over $2 million uh, to defend me. And if I win, that money doesn't come back. I mean, that, that money's gone. Um, and I don't have $2 million. I was a sailing coach that took no money. Right. So, so plead, plead not guilty and win. you're out 2 million bucks, your career's over and it's going to take a year and a half at least and you're and and if you plead not guilty, you're at risk of these massive prison sentences, right? And, right. That's what and of course, part of this was if you did, as he was laying that out, you were talking about, well, would I have an opportunity to, you know, I didn't do anything wrong, 
would I have an opportunity to lay it out for them so they would understand what my job was, what I was supposed to be doing, how it worked. And if they had that context, perhaps they would see it differently. And what did they tell you about that? If yeah, so this came to the essence of it. So I went to Boston to give you a little context. I went to Boston. I'm in, took the red eye flight. I'm in. I took everything out of my office possible, every handbook, everything I've ever been given by Stanford, and I'm there in my lawyer's office at eight in the morning. Um, I spend like six or seven hours just talking to them, and I hand them the handbook. You know, our handbook for for student athletes and for coaches, and it specifically talks about in there for. So coaches supporting athletes, the only guidance is given is that the um, the student that you want to recruit has to be able to help the team. And so it doesn't say how or where. So my lawyer is like, so if we look at this in a, in a pure basis, let's say you took all this money and everything else, wouldn't you still be doing your job? <laughs> I was like, yes, I think so. The way that reads. I didn't do that. But yes, I still think that I should be, you know, fine for doing my job. So he brought that over um, to the to the prosecutors out to the federal courthouse and met with them, and they were just not interested at all. They had no interest in any other scenario, any other conversation. What I would garner is they had no interest in the truth. They just wanted to have their narrative, and that was it. Right, and part of the idea of when you are in a trial with racketeering, uh, the other the idea that you would be sitting in trial along with the other coaches who were from different schools and who had totally different recruiting uh, programs and rules, and it would become incredibly complex, and it would be pretty difficult for a jury to really differentiate from one coach from another. Yeah, it it was going to get complicated quickly. And I think we saw that in the last case that just came through um, with the two parents uh, that were just found guilty. Um, that the the USC uh, process is totally different than my experience at Stanford, um, yeah. which is going to be totally different than Georgetown and totally different from Yale and so on from all these sure. schools. And you could get stuck in the muck and you're going to have a jury that's going to have to sit there and decipher through all of it um, over a month of testimony. Yeah, seems so wait, impossible. We're, we're, we're hitting on a really important thing. Let me just call this out clearly for our listeners. One of the other variables here is that if you pled not guilty, you basically are all lumped in together and you're casting your lot as co-conspirators with all these people. Even though you didn't know these people, there was no coordinated effort. So the not only was it massively expensive, not only was the prison time and penalty risk massive, but the only way that you thought you were going to be able to get your story separated from the other stories and, and, and show the differentiation between you and the other participants here was to plead guilty. Right. Yeah. What's it, well, this is a great choice that um, you, you were faced with, right? I mean, it's just incredible. That's why I say it's, it's maddening. I want to call attention to one more thing about the criminal justice system that it just gives kind of chills down my spine. You start the book and I'll just read two sentences. This is the way you start the book. You probably don't think you need to hear this. I wouldn't have guessed I did, but there's, here's the thing. When special agents from the Internal Revenue Service and Federal Bureau of Investigation knock on your door at 7 a.m. and flash their badges and ask whether they can come in, your answer should be no. Now, you said yes because you're an innocent guy. If they like, sure. And you were you were talking about you painted an incredible picture in the book about how you were offering them coffee, 
you know, could they get, you were cleaning up breakfast dishes and, you know, small child trying to get a small child out the door, all these things. But in the end, they have this conversation with you that starts out, what, relatively neutral and then gets progressively more intense and combative. And then at the end of that, they end up with something, they go off and write, there's no recording device in the conversation they have with you. And they end up with something they called a 302, which is a summary of the conversation they have with you. But essentially there's no recording and they can write whatever they want in terms of the summary of what transpired between you and them. It's true. And in talking to my lawyer about this specifically, he said, look, John, so he's the only one I still haven't heard a majority or really I haven't heard any of the the transcripts or any of the conversations that the FBI recorded because they don't have to show you any evidence before because I pled guilty. They don't have to show me anything. Um, And he listened to a little bit and said, look, these these tapes aren't enough. The second you let them in the door and let the FBI and IRS in your door, that was it. That's when they had you. And that was, he's like on the face of it, if you didn't let them in the door, they probably don't have enough to go to wow, court. Wow, I didn't know that. So, but, but you and you also said you're in the book that your lawyer told you though that only innocent people let the agents in the in the door. Yeah, criminals yeah. know know enough not to. So so and 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 guess what? If your lawyer knows that that's true, the agents probably know that too as well. So that you let them in, you're serving them coffee, you're acting like they're guests in your home. They they they've been around the block enough times to know this guy didn't do what others did here. But that doesn't help you. No, they're looking no, for the narrative. It, they are, and, and if you look at even more, I'm the only one that was offered a deal. Um, besides, you know, Rudy Meredith and Rick Singer, who is the two that basically broke open the whole case, right? So I'm the only one that's offered a deal and I'm giving them nothing. They have nothing else because I didn't do anything. I don't have anything to give them. They didn't even ask me for anything really. And so why are they even offering me a deal? Well, because I'm so different than everybody else in this. It's just brutal. Now, let me ask you another question, and, and I think I know where you're, you're going to go here, but you know, wh- what role did the celebrity nature of this case have on how it impacted you? Because and, and, really, what Dan and I are trying to get at here, you know, we hear a lot about the criminal justice system, but I, I don't have any firsthand experience with it, thank goodness. Uh, but you hear a lot about what it's really like, and, and, and it's fascinating for us to hear the inside of it, what 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 impact did the celebrity uh, element of this have? Do you think, John? I think it was huge. Um, it blew up the the media and the coverage of it um, exceptionally because that's what the media glommed onto. Um, they were all about the the two actresses, and that's what they asked about all the time. Um, so it really had a huge impact, and it it hurt me specifically even more because. I became for a short time, but I became the face of this because I'm the one walking in with Rick Singer um, into federal court on March 12th. We're the only two going in there in Boston. And so all the pictures are of me, but it's talking about the actresses. Um, and so my I become a, a poster child for this, which is just brutal. And it was just, you said earlier, it was just just luck of the schedule that you and Rick were arraigned on the same day. Yes, and that we have the same judge. That it's completely yeah. out of the hat drawn. 
you know, we're all sailors here, and, and a lot of our listeners probably aren't, but we know that sailing, rightly or, or, or wrongly, has a reputation as being a very elite sport. Does the, the fact that you were the sailing coach at an elite university play into the celebrity nature, the elite narrative of this story, you think, John? I do. I, I think in the end, the the story or the narrative that the government was going, they really wanted the name Stanford in there. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, Stanford hasn't been touched by anything ever. Right. right? So this is the first piece of this. Um, the second thing is that certainly the media took the narrative even farther and said, oh, sailing, oh, rowing. You know, here are these other sports that are right. water polo, you know, that aren't done. Um, this all got glummed together. Tennis. 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 Yeah. Right. Yeah. This was a story about privilege. It was, yeah. It yeah. Was. Now, now, can, can we? Can you tell us a little bit about you know about after you, you meet with the agents? What was your interaction with Stanford at that point? Um, did you let them know that you'd heard from these agents and and like how how did the dialogue with your boss with your employer change at that point? <laughs> So the agents told me when they left, because uh, I asked, I said, look, can I talk to Stanford about this? I, I mean, here's a guy that took no money. They obviously know that. They've got all the records. They've got my bank accounts. They've got everything. They know I don't take, take a dime. Couldn't I, they, Stanford should realize that I don't have any malicious intent here. Shouldn't I just at least talk to them about this? And they said, absolutely no. Um, that if I did that, it would be obstruction of justice. And at that point, the one thought that came through, my lawyer kind of backed me up on this, is that there's more people at Stanford. Um, I talked about one that I knew had connection with uh, with Rick Singer in the book. Um, so I thought that, okay, there's there's there. I talk about another one who's actually my boss, Bernard Muir, um, that I believe has connection with Rick Singer as well. And so maybe there's more that's going to happen um, to do that. So that's really let led me to believe that the government was serious of me not talking to them. So now I have to go about my life for almost a month of coaching and interacting. I even have right before I leave for Boston to go plead guilty, I get pulled into who is the deputy athletic director at the time into her office um, as she's congratulating me on recruiting and how great of a job I'm doing and how great of a job that, and I'm going to be put in this kind of elite category with admissions because I've been bringing such great student athletes to the school. And I'm just, I'm dying inside, you know, I'm absolutely dying just listening so, to this. So you think at this point, your, your, your employer doesn't know that you've been, that you've met with the FBI. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. At least, at least, uh, the people on that level. I know that yeah. the FBI has met with Stanford, but at the very highest level. Right. So they, they knock on your door in February. What, what was the date? February what? Uh, I don't remember the exact date. Okay. No. But then March 12th, you plead guilty and that's the day Stanford fires you. Yes. And yeah. and, and how, did, how did that conversation go? They just cut ties right away? Do you think like, did, did, were they ready for this or did they just hear the news like everybody else and say, we're done? No, they were 100% ready for this. They knew this was happening even before the FBI and IRS came to my door. Uh, they had already talked to Stanford. They had already had confidential information and emails that I had sent um, that Stanford had to have given them in that conversation. And 
I was terminated on March 12th um, in the morning by email. So wow. I've never talked to anybody even to this day um, on, on a phone call or face-to-face at Stanford. So John, Dean's going to get into this more, I think, but I also want to point out the idea you were talking about that you've had this ongoing conversation with the athletic uh, associate athletic director, whoever it is saying you're doing a good job recruiting students who have great, good academic merit. You're also in kind of constant contact with the advancement department about on, on those donate on those donations as well. Yeah. Yeah. So every donation that Rick brought in, um, I brought right down to them. They wanted me to see if he would donate more, um, to pledge more. Uh, they were very interested in this. And when I tried to explain who Rick Singer was, especially in the very beginning, uh, I just got stopped short and said, oh, no, no, we know Rick. Hmm. Um, so I, I'm thinking from that conversation that I'm doing the right thing. Right. It's a, right. the culture, right? The culture of fundraising, the culture of recruitment, the idea that I think in the book you talk about the idea is that I think when you started at Stanford, you weren't necessarily uh, you weren't responsible for raising your own money for the program. And then that changed. Yeah, that's true. So when I first started, I was hired by Bob Bolsby, um, the athletic director there. And he had a very, very clear message that coaches coach and the development office fundraises money. And we were absolutely expected to go and talk at fundraisers and talk about our sport and our players and upcoming season and so on. I spent a lot of time talking about the America's Cup to trustees and donors when we were there. And so that was totally acceptable, but we were never responsible for the ask or certainly to transfer checks or money or any of that thing. When did, the, when did that change? How far into your career at Stanford did that change? It's almost about halfway um, when Bernard Muir started. And my first, very first meeting with him, he came into my office. He met with every head coach in his first you know, week or two there, um, had a conversation, sat down on the couch in my office and said, hey, what do you need? What are you looking for? What do you need from me? And we talked about adding uh, a third coach, a second assistant. And he said, hey, that's great. You fundraise for it and endow your position. And then we can talk about a second assistant. And the stone, the tone was set right there. And, and did, the, did the expectation that you and I'm assuming other small sport coaches, non-revenue generating sports, uh, I'm, uh, did, did, the, did the incentive or the pressure or the expectation to raise money rise from there? Like, like was there increased pressure over time? It, it was in the way, it, you know, instead of them coming to me saying, hey, you need to fundraise this money, it was if you need these things to be successful. So meaning for us, for a non-revenue sport like sailing, but we have to raise all of our capital expenses. So if you need sailboats to do your job, then you need to fundraise for them. So they and told you the bare expenses that they would cover and you had to find the revenue for everything else. And boats, I'm, I'm plane tickets. A plane tickets they covered, all the travel expenses they covered, but any capital. So boats, we had to travel every day from campus to the boathouse. So we needed cars to do that. Uh, it was a 20 minute drive and that was up to us. They wouldn't provide that. So Stanford, and we'll get, we'll get into this a little more later, $29 billion endowment Stanford wants to have a sailing team. They'll cover your two coaches' salaries and certain expenses like travel. But if the sailing team actually wants boats or actually wants vehicles to get to their boats, you have to go raise that money. Correct. And that was not the case. Who bought the boats when you first got the job under your under the guy who hired you? 
So it was done through donation still, but it wasn't done by the coach. It was okay. done through so, the office. So it's always been a fundraising item, but it wasn't on your purview to go find the money. Correct. And, and yeah. Dean, we found out that it's very difficult to sail without boats. We did find that out, right? In a, <laughs> in a previous did. life. We did a lot of research. Yeah, we did that. <laughs> yeah, we did that research. That, that, that Sailing without boats is called swimming. Yeah. It's a different sport. Right? It's a different sport. It is. Um, so so, so they, they start putting this on you now, John, and, and, and they take it off the development office. So tell us about the extensive training that you had in fundraising and, and all of the guidelines that they gave you and, and support they gave you in your new, your new dual career as a fundraiser? Uh, it was exactly zero. Um, yeah. zero. Zero training. They certainly had a development officer assigned to my sport and they would check in and see if I needed something, but really wasn't going to do much um, from that. So, except so for no training ex- on how to make an ask, no training yeah. on how to make an ask, no training on how to source a donor. No training on where the minefields were, things to avoid, red flags if you hear this. No training on what you're allowed to promise and what you're not. You know, stop me, stop me if I say something wrong. What here. kind of checks you can yeah. accept from a foundation, from individuals, from corporations? Right. You know, I, I asked all those questions and they said yes. <laughs> you know, that was we, we accept all checks from all foundations and everywhere you want to go, no problem. Um, no, there was there was zero training, especially when it turns to legal issues and in a legal area, a part of the law that is very gray um, that could get yeah. you into trouble very quickly. There was no training on that. I would think you'd be sitting in a room for like three days, a course on, you know, all these things. And here's how you can get in trouble and et cetera. They probably do now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope they do now. Um, yeah. Or even more so, I hope that coaches coach and don't do the ask. Yeah. Um, that's the cleanest way to do it. So one other thing, so I think the culture that you were in, you're talking about this perspective at the beginning of the podcast and the idea that you went in there and maybe you were doing it from the universities. You know, you're getting into their shoes. You expected that you would be, you'd be trustful, that you would be loyal, and that you expected those things back. And that the idea of perspective now is you have to be thinking about yourself. Um, so I think this cultural, the culture that you're in is very important as we, as, as, the, as the facts, you know, as we hear what happened. Um, and one of the things that was interesting to me was like, of course, oh, if someone gives you $500,000, you know, to me, that would be, you know, that wouldn't have ever happened before. But you talk about in the book how wealthy donors to Stanford often do or it sometimes do odd, but very wonderful things. And that there was an occasion where someone gave $495,000 to the, was it to the sailing program? Even though they, <clears throat> their child was in, in into equestrian sports. Right. Yeah. And it was a donor that called me at six in the morning and introduced themselves the first time. The donor was a sailor, um, but had no connection to the sailing team. Never had met him before. And he was just like, I want to support, um, I want to have a direct support to student athletes and I want to support the small sports. I don't want to donate to football, basketball. I want to donate to someone like you and I love sailing. So here you go. What do you need? Give me a shopping list. Right. And so there's a precedent for people doing, as you say, odd, but wonderful things with, with large amounts of money. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. Dan, you're pulling out a great point here because- and again, you know, let's 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 be honest. And we said this up front. 
you know, Dan and I both consider John and, and Molly friends. So, you know, we're looking at this uh, f- as much as we can from their perspective. A skeptic's going to listen to this story and he's going to say, whoa, some some guy shows up out of nowhere and offers you half a million bucks. Like, come on, bud. Like, wake up. How naive could you be? Of course you got in trouble. But what you're saying is that kind of stuff happens a lot at a place like Stanford. It does. And part of it is that you expect the university to do their due diligence. Um, I bring in $500,000. I'm saying, hey, is this okay that it's coming from this foundation and and these things are happening? And my athletic director who's in charge of development says, yes, you're all good. No problem. Here's where to write the check to. Um, And that that was it. I found out after this case broke um, from friends that had been in development in Stanford, not athletics, but in Stanford as a whole. And I said, hey, look, just tell me if, you know, a $500,000 donation, doesn't that raise some flags? Doesn't that spur us on due diligence? And he said, John, if it's over $10,000, there's red flags everywhere and there's due diligence. Somebody looked at this and passed it through and did nothing, you know, for this and basically left you out in it. Um, and that's, that's the key. That's where it happens. Interesting. You know, what's the number, uh, Dean, on the endowment? Is it 29? Was it 20? 20? On the Stanford website, uh, you, you, the endowment's around 29 billion with a Okay, B. so you don't get to 29 billion without many, many, many $500,000 and, and greater checks. So it's not like it's, I, to your point, I think a good advancement office is doing, you know, diligence on all of those larger checks, and they probably are, but- you know, these kinds of checks, these size checks, um, you know, they occur on, on a somewhat regular basis. Well, and, and if they knew, you know, so so Rick Singer's name comes up, John, you bring it up. Somebody made it clear to you that they knew who the guy was. Somebody there knew that John, uh, that, that Rick Singer was representing families and that part of the Rick Singer plan was a, a, a little help with admissions. Like, Somebody knew that somewhere in the system, because if you know Rick Singer, you know that's the game he was playing. And and no one came to you and, and said, hey, just be careful. There, there, there are always strings attached to Rick's donations. Like the, n- none of that conversation ever happened. No, never did. Never anyone. Yeah. 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 Let, let, let's turn our attention a little bit now. And, and you know, because we've spent some time talking about the machine of the criminal justice system. And, and and one more sort of capstone point on that, you know, I, I hear a story like this from somebody that I know, it just, it makes me, it makes me even more aware of the fact that if you get stuck in this system and you do not have massive financial resources, calling it an uphill battle is, is a massive understatement. I mean, it's nearly you impossible. You have no chance. You have no chance. And, and, you know, you hear stories all the time about people pleading guilty to things. And I'll be honest with you. I hear stories like that. And my first assumption is, well, they must have been guilty of something. Yeah. Right. Uh, And 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 I would say that was my assumption, too. Um, That was, you know, before this case happened, if someone pled guilty, I would have I was a black and white person. I was like, they are guilty. They you know, they're doing the right thing by pleading guilty. and, And that's out. They made a mistake. Right. And now that's happened to me, obviously, I'm extremely biased, but now it's right. happened to me. But I read a lot and you look at the yeah. percentage that the government wins in these cases and forces a plea is just 
you're telling me that they're so good that the Justice Department is so good. I think we have proof otherwise, but they're so good that they're they're getting plea deals at a ninety percent rate. I mean, yeah. that's that's astronomical. I used to think to myself, why would you plead guilty if you weren't guilty? I used to think that. So so let's let's talk about the other major institution. Uh, you know, talk about being stuck, caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, let's talk about the other major institution in this story, and and you know. We'll talk about Stanford, but but full disclosure, I'm really fascinated by the business of academia. Okay, it is a big business, and and I looked up a bunch of facts about Stanford before we met today, and these are all off Stanford's own information. So, 4.3 percent acceptance rate in 2020. We've already mentioned a couple of times an endowment of 29 billion with a B. Current tuition 75,000. Anybody who knows anything about Academia knows that tuition at almost no school covers the actual cost of educating a student. And, and you know, costs of education are skyrocketing. Building happening everywhere. It's an arms race. Staff growth. I looked up some staff numbers. Okay. Uh, Stanford on their website lists 2,279 teaching faculty and real number 15,314 non-teaching staff for a total undergraduate and graduate population of about 15,000 students. So they love to talk about that ratio of, you know, five students to, to every one teacher. That's a great ratio. They sell on that. But the non-teaching staff to the, to the to student ratio is one to one, you know, and, and, and everybody knows that in academia, like you, you can't make ends meet just on tuition alone. So there's, there are these side and back doors into the school for those who are willing essentially to under, underwrite that deficit on an annual basis. And that's really at the heart of this, right? I mean, you know, Stanford needs to raise money. Every school needs to raise money. I, I'd love to just hear more, John, from you on your thoughts about the intersection of development and admissions. You must have a perspective on this. Yeah, you know, the the money part of it is just so powerful for each university because it's not only that they have to cover their costs and, and the things that they want to do like capital purchases and so on but the more they fundraise the more they move up in the u.s news and world report rankings which has become the holy grail you know so and it's it's part of the equation uh there's a great uh a great podcast with malcolm gladwell that breaks up the equation of this and just puts listen in, to it the other day just yeah, listen to it it's, Fantastic. It's incredible. And I'm listening to that podcast. I was actually in Boston at the time when I listened to it. And I'm I'm like grabbing the steering wheel, just like going nuts. I'm like, are you kidding me? Because yeah. it's it's such a huge play. Um, the, you know, we looked at today, uh, um, the, or recently, I believe it was Amherst that just said that um, they're not going to take, have admissions, have any, be impacted by um, any legacy. Uh, for that. And so that's a huge first step um, to be able to do that, that, that that's just changing. Um, that's showing a big move forward. And maybe this case helped that move forward. I don't know. Um, but the intersection of money and admissions is just so great. I mean, you walk around any school. I grew up in Boston. You can walk around Harvard. Um, you can walk around MIT and see all the buildings have names on them. Those didn't come from nowhere. And a lot of their kids went to school there. Um, and it's it, it is very closely tied um, for all of it. And what we've learned from this case is USC even had a system 
<laughs> of linking admissions with um, with money. And I think that's going to come out even more in the next trial. Um, so I'll be really interested for that. Yeah, you know, and 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 there, we, we, whenever something like this happens, we end up in this. You know, there, there's a there's a tone to the narrative that a holier than thou, you know, purity narrative that you know, money and 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 higher learning shouldn't be intertwined. And and I get that in a perfect world that would be true. But but I I my my troubling thing here is I always go back to the the basic business model. And people say, well, there should be no side doors. There should be no back doors. Okay, I get it. But if you need to beg people for money to balance your books and raise your endowment, so, you know, you've got development officers that have targets that they have to raise money. They have they have pressure to raise money. You got sports that are needing to raise money. You got people willing to give money. It's not a it's not a big leap in logic to think that the people giving huge sums of money are going to want a little something in return. And, you know, I always say to people that whenever there is a need to, to beg for money, there is always going to be a side door, whether you like it or not. And, you know, and, 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 and the scary part about this story is we're not talking about a school that was barely making ends meet. We're talking about Stanford university with a $29 billion endowment, which is, I'm assuming one of the biggest in the country. I think it's the second biggest. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Dean, you know, just so, go back to the point that I was making about the culture and how important that is to the story. I mean, John, just speak to the idea of like, I think you talk about in the book, how the recognition that you would get as a coach, like when would you get recognition? You didn't get a lot of recognition for the teams or multiple teams that had done very well in some case, national championships, but you got recognition for, for other, for bringing in money, for bringing in money. Yeah, in you know the the most gleaming example is what they what the kind of the story that they talked about in the Netflix documentary, and obviously I talked about in my book as well is our big review, and this this big review was the first time it ever happened with every head coach um, with this kind of core senior staff, and it was to evaluate everything and to put together a five and ten year plan for your sport. So this was a make or break meeting in my mind. Uh, it was certainly categorized as such. And we go in to go through, and I'm the last head coach to go through this meeting uh, because my season was ramping up and they wanted to do this. And so we had just come back. I had just come back from Michigan from one of our players winning the single-handed national championship. And there was zero recognition from the school. I mean, there was the the story that was like half right. You know, sailing stories are always about half right. If you get about 50% right on a college website, you're doing all right. But then we get the half right story that's on the website – but nothing, you know, that in these days, if you don't, if the athletic director isn't tweeting about it. If there isn't, you know, Instagram stories or anything else about it, it's nothing. It doesn't mean anything to these kids. And there was nothing for that. It, so one of the purposes of this meeting was to ask for that, to say, hey, a small sport like mine, non-revenue, could gain a lot. We could gain a lot of exposure. It would be great for these student athletes to be recognized for this. And they said, you know, the athletic director basically just passed it on to the basically what I would characterize as the social media czar for Stanford and just said, Hey, you do this. That sounds great. You know, from that and while he's looking at a TV and watching college basketball in front of him. And the only thing that he picks his head up on is when we get to fundraising and he looks over and he's like, John, you're doing a great job with that, you know, and keep that up, keep that work up. That's great. How many national championships did your athletes win while you were coaching at Stanford, John? Uh, unfortunately only one. 
why I was okay. there. We were on the podium a lot, but not uh, not yeah. on the top. So yeah, but you 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 routinely one of the top programs in the country. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and and your only recognition was for the money that you bring in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not the Marshall Scholar that we had, or you know, not the we won one of our players won the biggest engineering prize that Stanford has, you know, not the, all the all Americans and academic all Americans we have, or the, you know, scholar sportsmanship of the year award that we got. None of those were recognized. Yeah. Wow. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, you know, college, college fundraising and the connection to admissions, you know, if they can drive a wedge between that, you know, I'm all for it. I mean, I've got kids that are someday going to be going to college and I'd like to think that, They'll be able to get in on their own merits, uh, uh, but I, I have a hard time seeing that happening. I mean, as long as you're running a business model that, you know, I'm a business owner, and as long as you're running a business model that runs annual deficits and you're begging people for money, I I have a hard time seeing how the business model allows the purity to actually happen. Uh, one man's opinion. I don't know, Dan, what do you I, think? Well, I was just going to say, I have a slightly different take on it. Like I'm not someone who could give a very large contribution to a college, but mm-hmm. I'm not offended. If, you know, I'm not offended by the fact that, wow, that they were able to build a new rink at uh, Bowdoin College. Um, I sure. think it's great to have a new rink for a great team because it's fun to go, so you know, right? So all these things. So and even if that's going to affect the admissions of a couple of people, because I don't know, I, I'm not, I, maybe this is wrong, but I'm okay with someone getting a little bit of a, you know, a, a, a nudge um, on yeah. that. And that's the way it works. But when now you come in the other way around and you're, you know, the, the hypocrisy here is the fact that, oh, you know, there's purity about that. Dean, you mentioned the idea is that it's always pure, a pure line. Well, it's not pure. And the idea here is that, you know, somehow you're going to be doing this thing, but then you never want to kind of cop to the idea that that is part of part of the deal. I don't know. That's that's the hypocrisy of it for me that kind of hurts. Yeah, for sure. For sure. John, uh, fascinating conversation. We'd love to turn it back to you and just, you know, for for our listeners benefit and we're fascinated to hear what you have to say. Like, what are your biggest lessons learned from this thing? I mean, this has been a life-changing thing for you and Molly and your boys. Uh, you know, I, I'm still in touch with Molly, not as much as I'd like to be and not as much as we were in our Olympic heyday. But, you know, we're close to you guys. We care about you guys a lot. Um, you know, what, is, what does perspective tell you now uh, that you're on the other side of this thing? You know, it's, it's the same coaching that I would give all my student-athletes, but I didn't take my own coaching. Um, it is to really be able to find a foundation of who you are and try to understand who you are to, to be able to make those decisions and what you feel comfortable with. I, yeah. I will say honestly that I, you know, my coaching career went from doing junior sailing in Chicago, uh, running that program to being assistant coach at a small school like St. Mary's in Maryland, um, then to kind of being shotgun to the top at the Naval Academy. Um, yep. And then to Stanford, and I felt the most uncomfortable at Stanford. Um, it was a, a big school with very high expectations of everything, and not to say that that's wrong, um, but it put undue pressure and put it pushed me out of who I was, and I let yeah. that happen. And I think that's something that 
I have to learn for myself to put myself in a situation that I can succeed at and I can grow. I know there's a theory out there that you get pushed to the job that you're not qualified for <laughs> and yeah. you just keep going to that, right? And in a way, it's not to say that I wasn't qualified for the Stanford job, but I get pushed so far out of my comfort zone that I could never feel comfortable. And that's something that I have to really learn and put together and, and what I'm trying to move forward to now. Um, you know, I've started a totally new career, uh, kind of going back to my college education a little bit, um, but learning on my feet and learning on the job. And I love it. I make a ton of mistakes and I grind back. Yep. Um, and that's the stuff I loved about student athletes and students is that they made a ton yep. of mistakes and ground back, um, wouldn't let them destroy them. And I think that's how I want to see my life moving forward. I want to be part of a community that I can trust and respect and be loyal to. And, and that's what I've done now. Yeah. Hey, John, you, you describe in the book really well. You're, su you're such a good coach. The idea is like, you know, everybody has a bad race and sometimes a really maddening, frustrating race. And that you had to learn that every sailor doesn't react to that the same way, that some need a little feedback and some specifics on what they could have done better. Some need encouragement. Hey, you're going to go get this next one. You can do this, you know, believe in yourself. And some need to be left alone. So, you're been, been had you know more than a bad race here, so I'm asking you what, which one of those characters are you, and you know what do you need? What's 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 the future? What what do you what's going to make you whole? You know, I, I think if I answered that question about two years ago, I would have said I need to be left alone. Um, but my answer now is I need help. Um, I. I went out and sought help and I did it because I was getting pressure from the people that love me most, but I respect them and love them. So I, I did it and I realized instantly how, how helpful that was. Um, yeah. And writing this book was a big part of that. You know, as much as I want to get my story out there and there's many reasons for me to do that, but it was also for me to relive all these moments, evaluate them, be able to talk about them, get therapy, um, yeah. and be able to move forward. Uh, yeah. I was diagnosed with PTSD and it was an insane diagnosis. I'd never expected something like that. Um, but it's really helped me get help and move forward. Well, I, I just want to tell you that the, the book is beautifully done, beautifully written, it's maddening to read as someone who, as we've said at the top, you know, are friends of yours. Uh, it's maddening yes. to read. But one of the things that I thought was really poignant was the fact is that you, another reason to write the book was that you wanted this to be down on paper from your perspective for your kids. Because at some point they're going to yes. be able to Google your name and you know that what Google's going to say, no matter, no matter what goes on from here on out. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, uh, I was asked by a reporter once that said, well, you know, how do you feel about your connection to this case? And, you know, it's probably going to change. <laughs> I pointed out to him, it was like the Wikipedia page for this, for Varsity Blues is going to have my name on it forever. And there's nothing I can do about it. And it, it's sad that I have to compare it to a Wikipedia page, but it's prevalent these days, yeah. you know, and, and that's what Google is. And it's going to yeah. be brutal. Um, well, th this goes back to what you were saying before, John, about if you had pled not guilty, the, the degree to which you would have been lumped in with the larger narrative would have been significantly better. But even though you pled guilty and were clearly the least culpable and acknowledged that by the judge, you're still lumped in to a certain degree. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I will be forever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, listen, John, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation and we are honored that to get a little bit of your time. We both enjoyed uh, reading the book. We will post a link to the book when we when we share the podcast and, uh, you know, we just wish nothing but the best for you and Molly and your boys. And, uh, you know, just thanks for spending some time with us and, and telling your story. It's it's a story worth telling. And and I will look for the rest of my life. I will look very differently at the stories that I see about, you know, the criminal justice system. And just this has given me a much deeper understanding of what reality looks like. Amen. It changed so. my perspective totally. Um, we can't wish you, as Dean said, we wish you well. Keep going. Um, I hope that the things that uh, the idea, the chances to talk about the book and to go over some of these things are in some small way uh, helpful and just keep on trucking. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my story. Yeah, no problem. So, well, that does it for this episode of the Message Makeover podcast for Dan Cooney and all our colleagues at the Latimer Group and the Cooney Company and our podcast partners at Company Cubed. Thanks for listening and until next time. The Message Makeover podcast is brought to you by The Latimer Group, the experts in persuasive communication, online at thelatimergroup.com, and by The Cooney Company, the experts in business connection, online at thecooneycompany.com. And you can find the entire Message Makeover library on SoundCloud or wherever you download podcasts.